Hello and welcome to this podcast from the Linklater's Diversity Faculty. I'm Simon Kerr-Davis and I'm joined today by my colleagues Chloe Halls and Irfan Alana. And we're going to be discussing in further detail some of the issues that arise on intersectionality. Uh, you'll hopefully have heard our previous podcast on the law around intersectionality in the diversity field. Um, but today we're going to look more at the practical issues that employers might encounter. Um, so let's just start by thinking about intersectionality in the workplace and how, how employers might be able to embrace some of this. So Erfan, can you just give us a little bit of a flavor as to how intersectionality might feature in employers' policies? So I think it's important for employers to remember that they should, I guess, adopt an intersectional lens across all their policies and practices. And that will require ongoing effort and commitment from them. But if done well, there's significant potential to create an environment where individuals of all identities can thrive and bring their whole selves to work. And that will benefit the whole organisation. Um, some of the more specific things I wanted to pick up on were, I guess, capturing intersectional data, the hiring and promotion process, affinity networks, and incorporating an intersectional lens into employee training. Okay. And you will have heard, I hope, um, listeners, um, our previous podcasts on some of those aspects. So we've done podcasts on hiring and firing. We've done podcasts on data, um, looking at those in general on diversity issues. But intersectionality presents us with some quite specific issues. So shall we talk about capturing data? Irfan, what are the issues that go with capturing intersectional data that make it more difficult than capturing diversity data generally? Well, I think capturing intersectional data is difficult just because you kind of have a smaller data set to play with potentially. But I think it's really important we do this because if you only have data under a single strand, that might result in the struggles of certain groups not being recognised. And we can see this when we look at the Fawcett Society's recent report on sex and power. It showed that whilst 25% of parliamentary committees were chaired by women, none were chaired um, by women of colour. And whilst over a quarter of cabinet ministers were women, none were disabled or identified as LGBT. And without intersectional data, these points might not have been evident. And I think that is really important. That does draw attention to exactly the issue that we're talking about, that being a minority of a minority can actually be disregarded completely if we're only focusing on the main strands. Um, so how then um, can uh, uh, an, in, uh, an individual organisation actually try and capture that, that data? How can they get hold of data around intersectional groups? So I guess in the first place, it's just um, going out to your organisation and seeing what data you can collect. And I mean, it's natural that you might have lots of quantitative data about the experience of certain groups, but far less about others. Um, that means you can have a fairly clear idea about how women in general are facing that can't, for example, compare the experiences of disabled and able-bodied women in detail. And as a result, as an employer, I think you might rely on broad categories to structure your diversity initiatives. And I think that's okay, but employees need to realize the diversity within those groups and provide employees with regular and meaningful opportunities to share their specific experiences and insights, as well as ask for feedback on the impact of what they're doing. Otherwise, you know, your gender equality scheme might end up helping the career of a young white woman, but an older Muslim Pakistani woman may not realize her potential due to the interaction of misogyny, Islamophobia, and ageism in the workplace. And I think, 
as an employee also shouldn't ignore small numbers. You can still track the proportion of leavers, joiners and promotions from particular groups, even with small data sets. And I think doing so is significant as each loss, hire and promotion really matters. So I, I think always with diversity, it's a risk that people get obsessed by the quantitative data. And I agree with you that the experience sharing, the qualitative data, what does it feel like to be a woman in this organisation? What does it feel like to be a black woman in this organisation? What does it feel like to be a black Muslim woman in this organisation? That cumulative sense of experience sharing can be such a powerful tool um, and is something that employers ignore at their peril, actually, because it does create, you know, the safer you feel in the workplace to share that experience, the stronger your culture can, can become as, as a whole. So let's move then to promotion. How can we bring the, the concept of, of intersectionality into promotion policies? Firstly, ensuring the performance criteria used for determining promotions are inclusive. And what that means will vary greatly between different industries. But for example, there's a recent trend on placing, placing greater emphasis on skill-based assessments and skill-based criteria above, say, personality-based interviews to determine who should become a manager, for example, as um, those personality-based interviews may disadvantage, for example, autistic applicants or people from cultures that value modesty. And I think the second aspect, which is also as critical, is ensuring there are different voices with a seat at the table. Including people from underrepresented intersectional groups is critical because they can be a source of education for everyone ensuring a fair emphasis is placed on all the relevant performance criteria rather than those which might have been traditionally favoured. So do you mean in your panel assessing candidates, you need to make sure that there is fair representation, including intersectional representation across the panel? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I completely agree with that. Um, and it may also be possible to come up with ways to level playing fields as well. I know one of the things that we've been looking at as an organisation and are now doing um, is contextual assessments of people's academic qualifications, which deals primarily with an issue of socioeconomic difference. But we all know that socioeconomics tend to have other protected characteristics worked in there. So socioeconomic outcomes will be different for particular racial groups, for example. Um, so, okay, so that, that's promotion. What about the other, the other area where employers are so busy at the moment with affinity networks? We're seeing affinity networks kind of flowering and it's wonderful, but is there a risk that by creating affinity networks within specific strands, you ignore the crossover points? Definitely, so I think there is a danger of um, having these affinity networks which operate in silos and so you don't recognize the interaction and that ignores the reality of individuals which is the fact that they're multifaceted and they have intersectional identities. Um, so I think it's really important when you're looking at affinity networks that when they're making decisions about different topics the variety of their identities should be realized and um, for example in your disabilities affinity group it's important that initiatives are not just led by white members. Um, I think employers should also encourage affinity groups to connect developing collaborative events and initiatives. Um, so for example, I was recently involved in an event organised by the Linklater's Ethnicity and Race and Pride Networks. And during this event, Salim Haddad, who's an award-winning author and filmmaker, shared his thoughts on what queerness means. And in particular, he highlighted how he felt he felt queer growing up as a gay man in the, in the Middle East, 
but then coming to Canada for university, he felt queer as an Arab man, given the negative stereotypes attached to the region. I think employers should also consider having diversity events focused on themes like authenticity, which can capture a, a variety of intersectional experiences, rather than focusing on those diverse characteristics in silos. Okay, so um, that that's, sounds to me like it's again bringing in experience sharing and you know people uh, talking about their own experiences within their intersectional um, uh, characteristics. So how then can employers take that uh, that idea of intersectionality and apply it more generally into training, into when we actually educate our, our people about issues like you know harassment, normal workplace issues? So yes, take sexual harassment training. Most sexual harassment training we see focuses on our typical view of sexual harassment, a senior male individual harassing a more junior female colleague. Um, but I think the picture is much more nuanced when we bring race and ethnicity into the equation. Um, for example, a recent US study found that nearly one in three Asian women who have experienced sexual harassment were harassed by a junior colleague. And the study also highlighted that black men are far more, far more likely to have been sexually harassed by a colleague than men of other backgrounds. And I guess to take an intersectional approach to sexual harassment in the workplace, the training should highlight and tackle stereotypes about certain groups, which, as the study suggests, might result in them being more likely to be subject to harassment. I think companies can also think about carrying out culture audits, and through those audits, they can gauge a better understanding of the landscape of sexual misconduct at the organisation and how different groups actually experience sexual harassment. I think it's fascinating when a, a training session that is about a diversity issue can itself end up making assumptions about who is the likely victim, who is the likely perpetrator of a particular type of action. I find that fascinating. It's amazing how many harassment trainings you, you, you see where all of those assumptions are front and centre and there's really no recognition that it could be anything other than a standard senior male, junior female um, kind of interaction when actually we know it's much more nuanced than that. So I think that's, that is really interesting. Um, so Chloe, I just wanted to bring you in at this point. So we've talked about what employers might be able to do going really beyond uh, the place that the legislation is currently at. But I think it is important to recognise that legislation might move forward and could move forward from where we are today. Do you have any views on where we might go with this topic of intersectionality? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting point. And I know we touched on it briefly in the first podcast about Section 14 not being brought into force. Um, when the rest of the Equality Act was brought into force over a decade ago. And that was for cost reasons, the government thinking it'd be far too costly, far too burdensome for businesses at a time when they wanted to make Britain the best place in Europe to start a business. And then a couple of years later, in May 2012, they said they'd be delaying it again, another measure to try and reduce the cost of regulation on, on businesses. But, I mean, there is an argument there that given the majority of people who experience multiple discrimination will bring claims relying on single strands of discrimination anyway, there's an argument that bringing in this Section 14 potentially wouldn't create a significant increase in claims or a significant increase in costs and burdens for businesses. And given it's been in force, the Equality Act, for, for over a decade, you could say that 
most employers now are very aware of their obligations under the Act in terms of training and putting policies in place. So really, there, there is an argument that the introduction of this section wouldn't really create more onerous requirements than, than they're already under. And I think it's worth mentioning that earlier this year, most recently, we've seen calls again um, for the dual discrimination provisions to come in. And that was uh, most notably by the, the Women and Equalities Committee in respect of the menopause, which is, of course, the combination of sex and age. And they say that the current law fails to capture that menopause is this intersectional phenomenon. But in response to that, the government has said this year um, they wouldn't be introducing the Section 14 dual discrimination provisions on the basis it would still introduce unwelcome regulatory complexity and costs for employers. And that's at a time, of course, when we're in this post-pandemic era. So they're bringing in this costs argument again. But arguably, the complexity in the law is already there. Discrimination law is, is very technical. The requirements for comparators can often be very tricky for, for claimants. So having explicit permission in the law under Section 14 to bring these intersectional claims might, in fact, make it more straightforward and provide a more natural recourse. So I think just kind of pulling that all together, um, the answer is no, there's no immediate plans to bring in Section 14 and, and change the law. And it certainly seems unlikely that anything is going to happen imminently, but it hasn't been repealed. So it is still possible that it could be brought into force at a later date. I like your example of menopause, Chloe. I think that's a really good issue where regardless of the legal rights, because I don't think those have clearly been formulated yet. I mean, menopause cases are being argued on a number of different bases. Um, but regardless of the legal rights, employers are moving forward and championing that and, and developing policies that go beyond what the law apparently requires of them. Um, and I think for those of us working in the diversity field, that is a really fascinating example in the same way as socioeconomics not protected by the Equality Act. Uh, again, there's a provision which was never brought into force, um, and yet employers are moving ahead of where the law is taking them. Um, so just to draw together all that we've talked about, we see intersectionality as being a key part of the diversity agenda. We see it as something that needs to be used as a lens to look at all of the various aspects of the employment relationship, from recruitment to promotion to reward, all of those things can be looked at and assessed through the lens of intersectionality. And we know that our clients are seeking to do that um, and facing the, the data issues that we mentioned that may go with trying to achieve that sort of review and that sort of targeted progress. Um, we hope you found these two podcasts on the subject of intersectionality useful. Um, and please do come back to us, contact us with any comments that you may have. And we look forward to speaking to you again soon on another topic. Thank you. Bye for now.